which it was being written. Why was this being written? Who was this being written to? What questions are being answered? And the reason that's important with Romans is because not only is Romans sort of this massive, uh, deep, theological, uh, theologically rich letter that Paul wrote, but almost, but sometimes it's almost so big and so intimidating that we've reduced it down to just a few choice scriptures, right? You, can you identify with that? Like, that, that Romans is, is almost like too big as a whole, so now we, we know it just in small little parts, almost like those movies that you just remember all the one-liners afterwards, but you've totally forgotten what the plot was, basically every Chris Farley movie. You know, so you hear things like, uh, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All things work together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purposes. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, and also the church in their house. I'm just kidding. The last two you probably have not quoted that many times. But actually, both of them are critically important when you understand the flow of the entire letter. So what was Paul doing? Like, What is this letter about? For me, Romans has actually been... Uh, Deeply personal in, in what God has done in my life. Romans 8, I would say, almost more than any other chapter in the Bible, has transformed my understanding of who God is and who I am in Him. Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2 were some of the first verses that I memorized as a high school student. And so, uh, so these words have, have, have changed my life. And, and as I said, my hope is that uh, we will be changed as we dive in. And I would encourage you. To, to maybe look at Romans in a fresh way. One other way, and talked about like, that this reduction, sort of minimalized way of understanding Romans, uh, and, and this isn't bad, it's just insufficient, but Romans has also been used sort of as, a, as an evangelism tract. You may have heard of the Romans Road, uh, a way of people introducing the gospel to their friends or leading their friends to Christ. And again, not bad. I mean, it basically is taking five verses out of Romans and uh, leading people through that towards a, an experience of personal salvation. The problem, though, is, is that Romans is not primarily concerned with your personal salvation. Though it is concerned with personal salvation, it's not the point of the book. It's not the essence. And when you reduce it down to that, that this is about how we get into heaven one day. There's a whole lot of Romans that actually doesn't make sense or doesn't fit. Entire chapters that you probably should just cut out and get, be done with that don't have anything to do with that. So if it's not primarily about how we get into heaven one day, then what is Romans about? What is Paul doing? So let's begin here in Romans chapter 1. With Paul's introduction. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the, his resurrection from the dead, 
Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now that's just the first six verses and one sentence in the Greek. And there's a whole lot there. So let's just dive in just a little bit there. Uh, Paul it begins, as all ancient letters do, with an introduction of himself. Now do remember this also. Paul has not been to Rome. He doesn't know these, uh, these Christians. He's never visited these churches. He didn't plant these churches. He's writing this letter to a group of people that he's never met. But he obviously has clear affection for them. Later he'll say, I pray for you constantly. And I long to be with you. My plan is to come to you. And we see through the pages of Acts, we see through the pages of Romans, that there's this, there's, I don't want to say weird, but there's this uh, sort of driving idea of getting to Rome in Paul's mind. It's deeply significant to him. And so he's feeling deeply for these people, though, that he's never met. He doesn't have the same sort of relational credibility with this church that he's writing to, that he does with so many of the other letters that he's written And he begins with this statement of identity. This is who I am, a servant of Christ Jesus. That word servant, doulos, also can be translated slave. Actually, there's interesting uh, uh, kind of debate amongst Bible translators trying to, to translate that word from the Greek into the English, because in the English, uh, we have so many connotations with this word slave that is just different than the Greco-Roman context of slavery. But here, they translate it as servant, as one that has pledged their life to another or belongs to another person, that is at the mercy of another person or serving the needs of another and Paul is saying, I am a servant of Jesus. That is who I belong to. That is who I've oriented my life around. That is who defines my life. In essence, who owns my life. Now, for Paul, this wasn't a weird thought. Actually, in, in Jewish culture, it, it was uh, very common for the, the Jewish people to refer to themselves as servants or slaves of God all throughout the Old Testament. Paul's understanding was that everybody is a servant of to someone. Every one of us is serving someone, whether or not we're willing to admit it or aware of it. The question is who? And Paul has pledged his allegiance, his loyalty to Christ. It's his identity, but it's also his vocation. This call to be an apostle. If you want to circle that in your Bible, that, that word apostle literally means a sent one. One who is sent. So Paul is a man on a mission. But it's one who is sent with a message. An apostle is one who is proclaiming, and in the Roman wor world, it, the apostle, the sent one, was sent with the euangelion. Say that with me. Euangelion. That was pathetic. Again, euangelion. This is an important word, and you actually say this word all the time without even realizing it, and it's a word that is almost on every page of the book of Romans. One more time. Euangelion. And that word means... All right. Good news. Good news, which we translate 
gospel. The gospel, the good news of God. And so it was understood in Rome that Zeus was the proclaimer of the euangelion, the good news. And Hermes was the messenger of the euangelion, the good news. In other words, that Zeus proclaimed, he brought into reality the good news, the euang his euangelion, and Hermes would take that good news and, and run with it out. In fact, uh, the story, actually I was just talking to Kim about this, about, about running races, running marathons. The story of the original marathon. We know the story, right? The, the messenger that ran with the news of the victory of the armies. Ran so hard and so long and so fast that he, he gave his message, his good news, the euangelion. That we have won. Victory is ours. And then he collapsed and died. It's actually a really depressing story and why we should not run. Amen? <laughs> the good news that Paul has now, he's, he's wrapped himself and he's, and he's setting himself as apart from a different kingdom and a different system of gods to say that the true good news, the euangelion, belongs to who? This is an easy answer. Sunday school answer, the answer to every question a pastor asks, Jesus, that's right. The true good news belongs to Jesus. That's Paul's whole message. And Paul's a man on a mission with a message. And that message that he's carrying on this mission is what he is writing to the Romans about. I want you to get this. And I want you to be a part of it. He's set apart for the gospel. This good news of God, this proclamation of a new king and a new kingdom, this declaration of victory and salvation absolutely radically changed Paul's life. You remember this, that Paul grew up a religious young man, zealous in his faith, a Pharisee. The, the, the words of Scripture, he would have had the Old Testament memorized. He, he would have dwelt on it night and day, literally having tied Scriptures to his body so they would become a part of who he is. It would have saturated his prayers, and his longing and his desire was that all people would know the one true God, Yahweh, who revealed himself to Abraham and, and, and through the prophets and was the only true God. And yet here was this weird sect of people who claim to be Jewish that have now said that the Messiah showed up in this Jesus of Nazareth, who they claim, after being crucified three days later, rose again from the dead, proving himself to be the true Son of God. And so Paul, who was called Saul at the time, that was his Hebrew name, did everything he could to snuff out that blasphemy, that heretical movement that was beginning to stir up so much trouble. Because there's only one true God, and there's only the words of the prophets. And so there's no way this man who hung on a cross could be the king that was promised. There's no way this carpenter from could be the one that was going to deliver God's people. And that deliverance, by the way, was supposed to look like, in his mind, the overthrowing of the Romans. Who had occupied his land and his country. And none of that had happened yet. So how could this Jesus be anything but a troublemaker, a liar, maybe a good teacher, maybe a miracle worker? But at the end of the day, 
a, a false prophet. And so he was going through town to town to imprison and even oversaw the killing of those who claimed the name of Jesus. And it was on his way to Damascus to root out this blossoming Jesus movement that God blinded and knocked Paul to his face, Saul to his face. And, Saul, and, and the words of, of, of God to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, whose whole life has been about God, glorifying, honoring, pursuing God, cries out, who are you, God? And God declares, I am Jesus, who you've been persecuting. And it changes Saul's life. From that point forward, he wants everyone to encounter Jesus the way that he has. To understand this good news of God's salvation in Christ the way that he has. So Saul changes his name to Paul, and he's been given a unique call to move this good news from simply being a Jewish-rooted faith to proclaiming it to the rest of the world. To the Gentiles or the non-Jews. That Paul feels like God has uniquely called him, placed him to begin to take this message of Jesus. That there is a new king and there is a new kingdom out to the rest of the world. Set apart for this gospel, this good news. Redefined. And centered on Jesus. This gospel promised beforehand, Paul recognizes that this isn't a new thing, but this is the fulfillment of a very, very old thing. Elsewhere, Paul will actually acknowledge that this is all part of God's plan since before even creation. But definitely through, uh, through the line of David and through the words of the prophets, as he says here in Romans. And so Paul sets the stage for who he is, one, a man on a with a message on a mission, a man who's be been redefined by a new king, Jesus, who's declaring this good news to the world. And who's he writing to? To all those in Rome. So let's understand what, what Rome was and what the significance of it was as Paul is writing this letter. So there's a couple of things uh, to get, and, and again, I'm just trying to set you up to, to begin reading the rest of, uh, of Paul's letter through this understanding of this lens. Rome was the capital of the empire. It was the center of power. It, it was the center of military might for, the, for, the, uh, for the, the largest superpower in the world at the time. It was the center of culture, of education, of politics. Augustus, several uh, decades before, had really taken Rome to its pinnacle, and Augustus was quoted as saying that, I found Rome in bricks, I left it in marble. And so it was this city built on seven hills, and uh, this white, shining city, all roads lead to Rome. It was the center of the empire, and really considered the center of the universe. That Rome was the powerhouse by which everything else flowed. And out of Rome came the peace of the land. It was called the Pax Romana. This idea that if you submitted yourself to this empire, it would bring you prosperity and peace. 
Augustus was, in fact, so powerful, had, done, had, had spread uh, the power of Rome so much that he was actually considered a god. And most of the temples that had been originally built to Zeus were now being co-opted to also worship Augustus as god. And a phrase would rise up from Rome and out to the edges of the empire that Caesar is Lord. He's the son of God, the representative of God here on earth. That's who Rome was. Now Rome, we also know that at Pentecost, when the spirit of God was poured out in Acts chapter 2 on this early church, and that as they encountered the spirit that transformed and changed their life, that it wasn't no longer, it was no longer just simply Jesus next to them, but now the power of Jesus and the resurrection inside of them. The first thing it did is it moved them out into the streets. They began declaring the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and, and said that miraculously they were speaking in many languages, many tongues. And because in Jerusalem were gathered people from all over the known world, including some from Rome. So it could be presumed that some of those that encountered God through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost took this good news, that there's a new king, a true king, that reigns over everything in heaven and on earth, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and it's in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God. They took this good news from Jerusalem at Pentecost up to Rome, where they planted a few churches and houses. Now, those early churches would have been primarily Jewish. It was a Jewish movement. But just a, a little bit of history here is in 51, the, that generally in Rome, the Jews were despised. Sorry, I'll go back a little bit farther. About 50 years before that, uh, when Rome conquered Palestine, it took thousands of slaves out of Palestine, Jewish slaves, up to Rome. So most Jews in Rome began as slaves. Now, several generations later, a lot of them would have been freedmen at that point, but they were still Jewish by faith and by culture. And Jewish, Jewish faith, at its root, declares that there is only one God, and you do not bow to any God. I don't care if it's Caesar or it's Zeus. And so they were troublemakers. They were known for instigating riots. So there are all kinds of edicts against the Jews throughout Roman history. One of the most significant ones was in 51 AD, the emperor at the time, a guy named Claudius, issued an edict kicking all of the Jews out from Rome. It's referenced in Acts. And so when, when Claudius kicked all of the Jews out from Rome, if you imagine these little house churches that had begun to emerge there in Rome, centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ, but primarily Jewish, meaning that they spoke Hebrew, they maintained Jewish customs, and they're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus as good Jews, right? Also at the time, there were some Gentiles beginning to come to faith, but they would have been the minority in that church setting. They would have been just a handful, slave and free, rich and poor. Rome was this huge collection of people all smashed, living together side by side. That would have seen the transformation and the change and the miraculous power coming out of these house churches. And so people would have been coming to faith. And in this primarily Jewish movement, a handful of Gentiles. But in one day, because the emperor declares, all of a sudden, all of these Jews that led the church, that knew the church, that carried the scripture with them from, from, the, from early in life, are all of a sudden kicked out of Rome. 
So what do you do as a church when all of a sudden Big Brother is gone? And no longer is it a Jewish movement. It's a Gentile movement. And, when, and you didn't have the Torah memorized from youth like your Jewish friends and neighbors did. You spoke a different language when you went back home. You wore different clothes. You ate different food. You weren't worried about bacon or pork the way that they were. And so all of a sudden, this Roman church went from being a primarily Jewish church to being a primarily or a solely Gentile church. Uh, for us personally, many of you have, have asked, um, for us this week, uh, not only was it an emotional week because I'm studying the book of Romans, but also uh, this past weekend we dropped my daughter off at college for her freshman year. And so it's been a, a very tender week for dad. Um, and actually for all of us. And, uh, and so we went down, and she's so excited, but also just, you know, and sad at the same time, leaving home. And we have a, a pretty close family that is a, just a blessing of the Lord. And, um, and so we're all saying goodbye, and everyone's crying at the car. And we say goodbye, and we're trying to be, you know, happy and excited and high fives and all that. And then we get in the car, and it's just quiet. We're all driving back, the five of us without Eden. And... Uh, and I'm just kind of in my own world, and Sadie's sitting next to me just silently, and Jolie's looking out the window. And all of a sudden, I hear this little sniffle behind me from one of the boys. And I turn, and everyone in the car was crying, just quietly to themselves. And I say, and I think about this in the sense that, that uh, it has totally reoriented our, our world, not having big sister in the house. And uh, not having that one person. And, and so I'm thinking now, in the context, take that even larger, that you have this close-knit community that is doing life together, that's figuring out how to follow Jesus, how to love one another, how to deal with persecution and hatred and misunderstandings. And they've been through some stuff together, Jew and Gentile. And all of a sudden, in a day, half, of, half or more of your people are gone. And so you're having to figure that out now. So a, few, a couple of years pass, and Claudius dies. And when he dies, that edict ends. And, it, and, and uh, the Jewish Romans, in, including a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, make their way back from wherever they've been scattered to, back to Rome. And so now, the three or four years later, they come back to church that is a very different church than the one that they left. Just to imagine it for ourselves. Imagine that you move out of state. You go to California for four years. And you love Grace Monroe, and you're a part of church, and you love worship, and opening the Bible, and, and, uh, and being a part of the community, and groups, and cookouts, and serving in the community, and all the things that we do as a church. And you move away, and then four years later, you move back to Monroe. And you go, oh, you know what? I haven't really kept up with, don't really know what's going on with my, my people at Grace. I'm going to go and check that church out. And you show up on a Sunday morning, and the doors are closed. And you see a sign that says, worship on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Saturdays. And so you go the next week, and you show up, you walk in the door, and the first thing you notice is that everyone is dressed differently than you are. They all wear suits, and you're dressed in your shorts and flip-flops. And they speak a different language than you speak. 
and you don't recognize hardly any of the faces. And yet they're still opening the Bible. They're still declaring Jesus Christ as Lord. They're still orienting their lives around his life, death, and resurrection. But you've got to figure out with these deep divisions and this deep confusion, how do we live together as gospel people? That would have been the context that Paul was writing Romans to. And so Paul says it very clearly. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And what does he say or invite these, or these Romans to remember? That they belong to Jesus Christ. That they are loved by God. That they are called to be saints. They're called to be set apart for the purposes of God. So Paul sees this church with incredible potential to do the work of God and to launch all sorts of gospel people around the world, from the center of the empire out to the edges. And we find out later that Paul's desire isn't just simply to get to Rome. Paul's letter, I mean, Paul's desire is to base out of Rome to get to the edges of the empire, which is Spain. He wants to launch mission. He wants to see the gospel advance. But he also knows that if they're going to do it, if they're going to be those kind of people, they're going to need an uncommon unity that is only possible through the gospel. And so what is Paul reminding them of in the gospel? We'll see as we get through into the, the remaining chapters that he reminds them that all of us are sinners before God. No matter what background you come from, pagan, Gentile believer, Jewish, that all of us at our core are broken and in need of salvation from God. That we're a mess. That we've made a mess of our lives, and whenever we try to take our lives into our own hands, we hurt ourselves and we hurt those people around us. That, that we are condemned by our own words and our own actions, and that our own conviction reveals that we are not living up to the standards of life that we know is truly life. That we all stand on an equal playing field before God, desperately in need of His grace. And I cannot look across the room at anyone, no matter how different they look from me, no matter how different, if I disagree with them on their views or their opinions, we are all in the same boat. We are all sinners in need of grace. And I have no position from which to judge anyone. But also, not only are we all sinners on the same level playing field, but that Jesus Christ died for all of us, for the whole world. That the whole world could be saved, brought back into relationship with God, brought back into uh, belonging to his kingdom, part of his way, given the spirit, the deposit that guarantees our inheritance. That we're all in this together in need of God's grace and receiving his goodness through Christ.
as he lays out this gospel invitation to unify a people around the kingdom of God in order to continue to launch a base of mission for this incredible message. He's continually reminding them that they're in this together. We've called this series, What Can Separate Us? It comes uh, from Romans 8, talking about what can separate us from the love of God. But also, it is throughout the pages of Romans, what can separate us from one another? And the reason that I believe that this book has such power in our world today, obviously because it's the Word of God living and active and has power every day in every context, but also because we wake up every morning in an unbelievably painfully fractured and divided world where even Christians are at each other's throats. You know, Jesus' prayer in John 17 before he went to the cross was that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. One of Jesus' last words about the church was that we would be unified. And the only thing that has the power to unify us in a world that is desperate to have a glimpse of what true hope, peace, and love, and, and joy looks like, is the gospel. It's the gospel that puts us all on the same level, and it's the gospel that raises us all up to the same level. And so as you read Romans, yes, it is talking to you and me personally about our need for a Savior and what God has done through Jesus Christ. But also read Romans as God inviting a people to come together around this gospel message. That the world, as Paul writes here in the beginning, would be brought to obedience in Christ. That he is the true king, and his is the true kingdom. And it's not a matter of convenience or preference or favor. It is the reality. When Romans declared Caesar is Lord, they weren't declaring that Caesar's a good idea, and if you choose that this fits your life, then you should consider fitting him in. What they were declaring is, this is the reality, and you either submit or you die. It's either salvation or it's destruction, because he is Lord. And so when Paul declares Jesus is Lord and invites us into that kingdom, what he's, he's not saying, if it fits into your preferences or your convenience, if it makes your life a little bit better, you should consider this Jesus thing. What he's saying is, this is the reality. He is the king. And we either submit to that reality of the kingdom of God, or we crash our lives upon our own destruction. We choose. Choose. And so this morning, as we begin into Romans and maybe begin to read and understand this book with a, a different lens, with the hope that God would be birthing something in us, moving us towards his fullness and awareness of Christ, that we would be confronted the same way Paul was confronted by the reality of Jesus. We're going to take communion together. Communion, that great unifier of the church, so that common loaf and that common cup, that the thing that unites us together, the thing that makes us one, 
is Jesus Christ. His blood was shed for each and every one of us. And so as we worship together, I invite you, have some couples come forward and behold that bread. Jesus at the Last Supper said, this is my body given for you. Now that's not singular, that's plural. Given for y'all in good Southern English. Because it's not just about you. The reason this matters, I, I want us to get this, the reason this matters is because there's a very subtle and dangerous place our faith can lead us when it becomes all about us. And when we realize that we're a part of something so much bigger, that's the gospel of God, it's not the gospel of Brian. It's about who he is and what he desires that I'm submitting myself to. The act of communion is an act of taking communion is an act of faith, is an act of submission, is an act of recognition that Jesus Christ, you are Lord, and you gave your life for me. When you dip that bread in the cup, as Jesus said, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of a new covenant. And so my encouragement as we take communion together is that you just look around and recognize this is what unifies us as a church. This is what invites us into a new family. This is what saves our life. This is what forgives us, is the blood of Christ shed for all the world, including me. Now let's pray. Lord, thank you for this powerful book. And I pray that your word that you spoke through Paul to that church in Rome would speak powerfully to our church here in Monroe. Lord, will you draw our hearts together? God, will you move us forward in mission? Will you reorient our lives around your gospel, that you are king, you are Lord, and you call us to belong to you, to be set apart for you? And so, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts up to your word. God, what do you want us to know? What are you saying? How are you inviting us to respond? And so, Lord, we surrender to you, Jesus Christ, our King. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.